1: If God had a name, what would it be and would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his golden glory, what would you ask if he had just one question? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. yeah. God is great. Yeah. <laughs> what if God was one of us?
0: Just a slab like one of us. Whatever happened to this curly haired bra to begin with? Uh,
1: Joan, Joan Osborne, Osborne man. What? I don't know. Do you need anything else when that when you got that one in your uh, repertoire? <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: yeah. I
1: love I fucking love yeah. that song. Yeah. Only song I know that intentionally used the lyric yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally five consecutive yes. That is a lot to throw into a song and say that's good lyricism, but here we are. Um, Troy, how do you feel about religious horror? I'm just throwing it at you. Religious horror, movies that have religious Christian themes running through them. I'm curious to think where this sits on your docket. That's...
0: Wow. Right out of the gate with the tough one. Um, Okay. So straightforward. I'm not a religious person. Um, So I I think a lot of religious horror, the aspects of it are probably lost on me because I've never been a person of uh, extreme faith in that regard. I've, I've, um I'm, i have no religious fil- affiliation i never went to church as a kid i do remember like one time the neighborhood kids inviting me to a uh, vacation bible school during the um <laughs> during the summer and it was like a week and like when i was there like the the priests or whatever were like really adamant about like getting you to join the church and getting baptized so in my little like fifth grade mind I thought, Oh my God, I want to get baptized. That sounds so cool. So I went home and told my mom about it. I was going to get baptized that Saturday. And she, she, um, she let me have my little moment of like basking in this idea of baptism. But then the next day she came to me and she said, absolutely not, Troy. Uh, we are, I'm not allowing you to do this because you are way too young to understand what it fully means. So you know, 10 years down the line, when you're old enough to, to understand religion and, and all the complications and implications that come with baptism, if you want to do it, go for it. But I'm not going to let you do it now. And you know what? To this day, I respect the fuck out of her for it. But with that said, a lot of, like I said, a lot of the religious horror, a lot of the elements of the religious horror films that might be um, horrifying or disturbing to people of faith
1: or kind of lost on me. If that does that make sense? Yeah, no. I'm I'm happy you said that because that really resonates. I, you know, I I grew up in a complete opposite. I grew up in a strict Irish Catholic household and like with very strict Catholic rules and I went to private school and I was, you know, I was baptized and I went through all of the shtick. you know, I was an altar boy. Uh, and I, I carried that with me like into my early twenties. Like I didn't let it go right away. Even when I came out, I still tried to both be gay and Catholic, and it was really, uh, really tough. Honestly, it was it was a lot of it was very self destructive, you know. And so finally, like you know, come into realization about how I feel about religious religion in general. You know, very much aligned with where you are. Um, and and you know, I'm not personally a religious person. I'm not necessarily scared by the idea of like a deity, but there are there are themes that run through Christianity specifically, but religion in general. Um, there are a lot of themes that I still find myself uh, responding to, even though I don't necessarily believe it. It's in it. It's so ingrained in me that there are certain things I still react to. I still, you know, if I go to church, I have to go through all of the. the the blessings and I have to be able to say everything, recite all of the Psalms. Like I know all of that still. I still like feel moved to get communion. And I'm still very frightened by the concept of both like religion and when it's used as a weapon, how dangerous it can be because I've seen it. I've experienced it firsthand, but I'm also just terrified of some of the, the ideas that exist that are just so powerful and represent such forces of evil that it, it, you can't really shake it. You're still always going to have that fear embedded in you. When you grow up with that and you're exposed to that, even if you proclaim, I don't believe in this, films like The Exorcist, Stigmata, movies like that, they impact me. They do. And so I have to say, like, coming to this movie and realizing how religious this film is, the themes that run through it, I, I got really excited because I had never seen this film before. And same applies to you, right? correct correct
0: and you know while i can sit there and say that i'm not a religious person and, and some of this stuff does not have an effect on me as it would maybe somebody who has grown up in the church i will say i mean i think as a as a as a citizen as a human being we all whether we want to admit it or not are influenced in some regards by religion whatever religion that may be based on where we are living right religion has infiltrated so many aspects of our daily lives that I don't even think we are cognizant of it. So while you sit there and say, oh, I'm not a religious person, I'm an atheist, great, great. But society has embedded so many uh, aspects from the Bible, the Quran, whatever you want to say, that it is embedded in your daily life, whether you realize it or not. So there are some things, yes, that are quite disturbing. I mean, I might not be religious, but you bet your bottom ass that I sit there and think about what is, what, what does happen after we die? You know, what if there is a, uh, a more powerful being and in here all my life, I've just ignored it. But I can't say that, you know, I can't honestly say that religion has not influenced me at some point or in any aspect of my life, because I think it has all of us. I mean, just look at like, even our constitution and our laws, things like that, that aren't supposed to be influenced by religion, but very much have been,
1: right? And again, it's it's really hard to shake that because there's such a you know there's such a populace that's still caught up in the, the, the honestly, uh, I want to use a nice term like fascination that we have with with Christianity and with religion in general. You know, there's people who that that can't shake it even if they question it they can't shake their beliefs.
0: And that's great. You know, I would never uh, disparage someone for for their religious beliefs at all. The the issue is is when they turn around and use them as you as you hinted at for nefarious purposes or hurtful purposes or or try to, or or for trying to, you know, crush the the rights of somebody else. That's when I have a huge issue with religion and I think as we transition into the film that we're going to talk about, which is, yes, you're correct. I've never seen this film. God told me to uh, a film by Larry Cohen, who from his catalog of films, I think this one stands out quite a bit, don't you? I mean, he he's done like uh, it's alive. And I mean, the, of, of his catalogs of film, I think this is the glaring one that stands out as being something completely different. Uh,
1: I am really surprised. <laughs> Truly impressed that 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 he is the director of this film. Um, not saying that I don't enjoy his other films. I, I love the stuff. I, I correct me. Is that isn't he the director of the stuff? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yes. I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of that movie. And and I, but his films overall have a certain level of, and I say this respectfully, but I, almost like schlockiness, or it's a parody of certain things. You know, there's a there's a cartoonish element to a lot of his movies, a larger than life element. And this film is so much drier and more rooted in the the scary elements of reality uh, up until the second half, at least. But at first, this movie feels very dry, very bleak, very desperate. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's a completely different uh, style approach for him as a director, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, he he has a lot in common with a director
0: like Frank Henenlotter uh, that we covered last week with *Basket Case*. Um, sort of those gritty, schlocky type films. I mean, he did Maniac Cop. Larry Cohen went on to do Maniac Cop. I mean, he's done a lot of those films that have definitely made an impact in the genre. But looking at this, it's really hard to believe that he is the same director. But I mean, I don't want to get on this long, bore, long stretched out conversation about religion, because I think that there's so much that we're going to hit on within this film that we should probably just get into it and stop the listeners because guys if you haven't seen god told me to which i think this is probably a little bit of a an obscure title one of the more obscure titles that we've covered we've covered some really obscure stuff and this one's probably somewhere towards that level if you've never seen this film it's streaming i I would say check it out before listening to this episode and enlighten yourself with it because it is quite a um quite something to take in and um yeah, I
1: mean, whew. this is a film that does a lot of things very, very right, and does a couple things very wrong. And I, I'm going to go into it saying that, you know, after viewing this for my first time, and I love when you and I talk about movies we haven't seen before, because it, it, there's an excitement to it. And I'm feeling that with this movie. Uh, but when you know, going into this, I, I was really impressed. I was really surprised by um, some of the themes. And some of the ideas. Some of the concepts, some of the material that this movie, for a late 70s piece of cinema, um, was choosing to tackle and how it was choosing to address it. I think this film has some cojones, and even in the areas where it does falter, because there are a few, I respect this movie for just having, having the balls to just address religious topics with such a, just a, a blunt opinion on the matter.
0: Yeah, I will say, um, I will say, I'll put this out there. I I will say, I I did not love this movie. Please don't mistake my my seemingly excited... Tone and whatnot for the for that I fucking love this movie and I adore this movie. I actually uh, felt like this movie was a chore to get through a lot. A lot of the time, uh, we have covered films and we've talked about police procedurals kind of dr- drowning the the rest of the plot. And I think this is a perfect example of that. There are so many scenes of police things going on that I could give a shit less about. Um, I really found myself getting bored. But with that said, when the film hits, it hits, and I think something. I want to get right into it with this opening scene. Okay. So we get some nice, uh, some very haunting chanting choir type music. The, The opening credits are pretty stylistic. We have like smoke going through as this chanting and stuff is playing the opening credits. But then we cut to uh, the film takes place. We're back in New York City, Roger. The film takes place in New York City. We were just in New York City last week. We didn't have to. We didn't even have to pack our bags, Roger.
1: I know. I thought about that right away. I was like, "Oh gosh, this is another film that really." I mean, if we're going to talk about movies that use New York City to their advantage, the moments that work in this movie work because you are seeing iconic buildings set within an active city. It uses New York very well. Yes. Perhaps not as well as
0: basket case, but still you definitely recognize many of the the landmarks that this film implements into its setting. But okay, so right away we're we're just we're just the camera we're just there. We're in downtown New York City uh, people going about their daily lives on their lunch breaks. It's just a typical day you know, just like many of these other days where something like a mass shooting happens, people are going about their daily lives. When all of a sudden this poor man that's riding his bike is shot um, and falls to the ground and people are like, what the hell just happened? And then they all realize that these people are being shot by a sniper mass shooter that is perched up on top of a building on a water tower. This scene, Roger, I want to say. Oh, wow. I think this scene probably has a bigger impact on the audience now than it did then. Then, Roger, mass shootings weren't really a thing. I feel like this film is definitely playing homage with this opening scene to the um, to the nineteen sixty six uh, University of Texas tower shooting uh, perpetrated by Charles Whitman. I don't know if you remember hearing about that. He climbed the the tower on the University of Texas. Uh, campus in Austin and and shot I think like 15 or 16 students I feel like this this was 1976 so this was a decade la- uh, later still not a lot of mass shootings had happened between that time and the time that this film came out so while I feel like this was bold at the time to show this mass shooting watching it now hits a little bit different wouldn't you say so
1: you know man I went into this film blind I didn't really read anything other than snippets I had seen um occasionally pop up on social media but i really was just intrigued by the title um so when i came into this i really didn't know what to anticipate and when it first starts happening when the first person is shot there's there's a hokey 70s-esque quality to it you're like oh is this guy having an aneurysm like what's happening the guy falls over on the bike and then when you start to connect what's happening even though there is this kind of Uh, exaggerated 70s element to some of these moments. Some of these people, when they're dropping, it's very big, it's very just hokey. It doesn't matter because the way this scenario is handled is is really, I think, quite masterful. And it becomes, as it progresses, more and more chilling. And I'm sure, yeah, when they made it back then, I'm sure it was ballsy for that time. But there was a, a separation from reality, I think, because you're right these things rarely happened now man you watch this and it's chilling like there is a um, almost like a, it hits like in the pit of your stomach you almost feel like you're watching something wrong like you're watching them make something that you're not supposed to even watch for entertainment value because it's it's so shockingly real it, the fact that you just start to see these aerial shots of people running across the streets the panic when this movie hits panic when this movie hits chaos it shines and these moments become truly, truly wonderful at leading up to this whole shot atop this water tower, introducing this character. I mean, you get some amazing visuals and a phenomenal setup for the film. A great setup. I,
0: I, I this opening is, is shocking. Um, I, I feel like the, it opens the film very strongly. I personally don't think the film ever hits this stride again, but this opening is is brilliant. I I literally had chills down my spine watching it because it's something that unfortunately we as Americans see play out way too often. I mean, here I am in Vegas, the 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 location of the worst mass shooting in American history took place two miles down the road from me. Um, so like. You know, it's it's watching this is is, is horrifying and, and these people react. You're right. It's just so random. He's not really targeting anybody. He's just aiming the rifle and shooting and whoever he hits, that's who's that's who unfortunately is is dead. But yeah, the, we cut to then a, a news broadcast, which is Roger. Fuck,
1: I didn't know he was. It's the it's the camp owner from Sleepaway Camp. He's the he's the police captain. Let me say right now, he is, in my opinion, the standout in this film. And one of the reasons this opening works so well, it's not just the shooting. The whole moment where you have like the shot pulling back and revealing the, the sniper atop that water tower and becoming that very broad, wide shot, you start to see that this is really a visually impressive film at times. They play with a lot of focus racking. There's a lot of movement. This is not a still Movie. This is almost always moving. So that's impressive for the time, in my opinion. Uh, But once you start to meet some of these characters, I do feel a lot of the acting is actually quite good, especially during dramatic moments. And this guy, this news report, I feel like I'm watching something real. Like the way this is addressed, I feel like I'm actually watching newsreel following a shooting. It's really well handled.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's There's something very um, raw and natural about his delivery, but I just could not shake f- from my mind. Oh my God, that's that's Mel from Sleepaway Camp. But he's basically, yeah, he's just reciting what happened. Hey, at, at noon, somebody climbed up on the water tower, opened fire. Our, our police officers are on scene. One of our officers has taken it upon himself to climb the tower to try con- to confront the guy. And we cut to who becomes our m- main protagonist, who is in the movie, I would say 99% of the shots is Peter Nicholas. He is our main guy that we follow through the film. And you know what? I'm fine with that. He's engaging, charismatic, charming. Uh, he has this sense of mystery about him in some r- regards. And he, he makes, at least for me, he makes
1: for a really intriguing protagonist. The way they handle this character, I think, is. It... Right off the bat, they make some really smart choices. And, I mean, first is just casting Tony Lubianco in this role. He is quite good in this role. And he plays with all of the emotions and all of the layers that come with it. And there are plenty. At times, almost too many. But really, he is the rock throughout this film. He keeps it rooted in reality, even when aspects of the movie are starting to really drift into weird territories. Um, And, you know, starting with this opening moment, One of the reasons this whole sequence works so well is because they use it to introduce him in a very positive light. Immediately, when he's introduced, he has a very authoritative presence. He wants to engage the sniper and actually try to talk him down. They're sending a helicopter up to shoot the guy. And he's like, no, we've got to figure out why this guy is doing this. We have to actually understand the motivation. He's making really good choices to the point where he climbs up that ladder and he starts engaging the sniper and the sniper is also honestly phenomenal. Like there is this extremely well handled exchange of dialogue between these two men that I found just horrifying. I I think that the the mentality behind the sniper as he delivers his dialogue, the sense of peace and calm, the fact that he's not at all affected by what he's doing, it sets a great tone for what's to come.
0: I agree. the the casualness of his responses to Peter, who is asking him, "Hey, what's your name? Where are you from?" and Peter is actually giving him a lot of background. He's like, "Hey, Peter," tells him, "Hey, I graduated from you know this particular college. I I do this. I do that. What about you?" And yeah, the the calmness, just the nonchalantness that Harold Harold Gorman is the sniper's name that Harold responds with is chilling. Here he's blowing away innocent people down below, but he can have this just very almost nonchalant, boyish conversation with this guy. Although you cannot tell me that this guy is 22 years old. This He looks like he's about 49. I'm sorry.
1: When I looked at this guy, and this is me just kind of going there, I actually almost thought this this guy may be like a gay man with AIDS, like presented. And then I thought of the area was like maybe a little too early for that, but he's a very specific look to him. Does he not?
0: Yes, definitely. He would be something you would see on like one of those, you know, (laughs) leather magazines from the early eighties in, in seedy poor gay pork chops, the mustache, the, the curly hair, his voice also, I'm not making judgment, but his voice is very effeminate, especially compared to uh, Peter. So I had the same thought. I wonder if this is a, a gay gentleman because they do kind of play with uh, maybe not homosexual themes in this film, but they almost touch on them. But yeah, I just found this, this interaction, very chilling until Peter finally asks him, you know, what what can I tell people? Like people are going to want to know like why did you do this? And Harold says, "Well, if I tell you, you got to keep a secret." And and Peter's like, "Well, I don't know if I can do that, but people are going to want to know." And he said he says, he responds, "God told me to." And then he stands up and he literally jumps to his death off of the fucking water tower. And this shot of his, him, him going off of this water tower, phenomenal. It, it looks real. We've, we've, we've discussed plenty of movies where somebody falls off a balcony or jumps and you can totally tell it's a dummy. This looks amazing, especially for the, the budget of this film. What they pulled off in this opening is truly,
1: truly breathtaking. When they wrap up this moment, it, it leaves you wanting so much more in the sense of like, I am eager to bring it on with the rest of this film. Because this whole sequence, all the way through to that exact moment you're talking about, where he fucking dives off the top of that fucking water tower, that whole moment you're on the edge of your seat. There's another aspect I want to acknowledge, and it's it's um, Mrs. Gorman, the mother. They have a moment where they're interviewing this boy's, this boy, quote-unquote, you know this young man's mother. And again, for the era, the acting from this woman, the panic, she, she doesn't sound... Um, like she's, you know, uh, coming from a fake or, or theatrical place. She actually sounds like a panicked, real-life individual. And and it's really, again, chilling watching this woman as she's trying to defend her son, saying he would never do something like this. And she drops a few little hints about what's to come, but she's making it clear. She's like, my son has never, ever been the type of person to even have encounters with people. This makes no sense. Yeah, she's she
0: claims that she was told there's no way he could shoot that many people and and get to have that have that good of aim. I've been told that there's no way from that distance he could have killed that many people. My boy would not do that. He doesn't hang around with those types of people, and that does come back into play because after the after uh, Harold jumps, we get the body floating through the air before it hits the ground. Peter wakes up from a nightmare. He's now in his bed in his small little studio apartment with his girlfriend Casey. You know she is obviously used to this. Because, you know, she, t- she's like, you have another dream. She's like, you know what? It's, it's time someone else plays the hero. We find out, and I love this because it just whew, hit, hit kind of home. She's a substitute teacher, Roger. So she has to stop and call to find out what um, school she's been assigned to that day. And She finds out it's in the Bronx and she says, you know, she gets up, she's like, you know what? I could use a cop to escort me to, to, to this school. But there's there's this really interesting conversation they have because Peter obviously is still hung up on the sniper. And he says, he's like, I just don't understand how his aim could have been so accurate. It's almost like someone was guiding his hand.
1: Ooh, it's something creepy, creepy that, you know, is going to come back into play the way he mentions this. Um, and, it, and it definitely, definitely does. But I also
0: I also love her response. She says, "Well, you know what? People, crazy people, are often blessed with uh, inhumane strength in certain situations."
1: It's worth noting that Kay, that Casey was actually seen during that opening. They cut to her multiple times as she is wandering through the city, and she's actually seeing the shooting happening. Um, so. You know, the fact that you connect her, you really think Casey is going to be a pivotal character, and to a a certain extent she is, Um, but I found it surprising how she just drops off for chunks of the film to come. I really like her character. I really like how she's introduced here. I think she's endearing. I think their banter back and forth is charming, and you're really liking these two characters. Like, right off the bat, you're liking these two characters quite a bit, uh, which is setting you up for something to come here that I think is really a genius character arc. Um, And and something really interesting we'll explore in a moment, but that's worth noting. Like right off the bat, I think Casey is just charming and so well played, so well acted. She's lovely. She is. She is. Um, You know, and I didn't notice
0: the first time I watched it, I didn't notice that she was actually on the streets of New York until the second time, but you are right. She is prominently shown several times as the shots start to ring out. So she has like firsthand experience too with, with the trauma because I mean, she could have been hit. He, he's shaving, he's getting ready to go, and he tells her at that moment he's going to drive out to see Martha. She she gets a little hostile about it, and she says, you know what? We need to, You need to realize it's... She needs to realize it's our decision, not hers. In New York City now, anybody can get a divorce. And he's kind of like stunned to silence, and she walks away a little bit perturbed. And I really like how they handle this this moment, because I think in a lot of other films, like Casey would be his mistress, right? Like she would be his mistress, his wife doesn't know about it. It's kind of a secret little affair he's having his his poor you know his poor wife, who's you know playing the the traditional you know dutiful wife who's been mistreated, she's at home by herself, not even knowing what's her husband's up to. They don't go that route here. And in fact, like we cut to him at his house or Martha's house, and she very much is aware uh, of that he's seeing this other girl. And in fact, her very first line of dialogue is, why don't you be honest with her? Why do you, why are you letting her think that I'm the one that's standing in your guys' way? I have to stop and acknowledge that Sandy Dennis plays Martha. And Sandy Dennis is a national treasure. I fucking love Sandy Dennis. She's an Oscar-winning actress. One, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Seeing her in this role, even though it's it's small, she brings so many little quirks to it. And that's one thing Sandy Dennis did so well with every character she ever played. If you're going back to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, she adds so many little character quirks to her her character that it just makes them so endearing and so believable and lived in
1: oh yeah i i really feel this this woman's story like i mean the moment you see her you you know just by looking in her eyes you're like oh fuck like this is this is a rough situation and and what an interesting um decision to make when you know when you're talking about flawed protagonists i mean peter is at running up at the top of the list because you start off with such like a strong, positive note, an endearing note between these two characters. And then you are thrown out of nowhere the, the idea that he is having an affair. And his wife is aware. And these two women are just, like, dealing with it. And he's refusing to address it. And it is really a, just a strong choice to make for this character dynamic. Um, I, I really do like whenever you're kind of touching on this aspect of Peter's life, the story between these three. I, I like everything they bring into the table. You get some great performances. Sandy Dennis fucking rocking out this role. She's given almost a Margaret White kind of vibe at times. <laughs> Did you ever look at her opposite uh, opposite Casey and think, uh, this is very much like a sissy space, like, like <laughs> back and forth almost, Piper Lori situation? Yeah. <laughs> But
0: I, but I what I like about the whole scenario is that, you know, it does then lend us to to understand that that Peter is not the, as you mentioned, he's not the the the, the most uh, sympathetic character that we might have painted him to be from the opening scene when he's trying to talk this sniper down. What he's doing here is he's playing literally two women, and it's him because he is so religious, as she mentions. She tell, she's like, does Casey know you go to mass every morning? Does she know that you, you go to confession, that you cry at confession? Does she, does she know all this? It is literally his ties to religion, his strong connection to his faith that is pre- preventing him from getting a divorce. It's not Martha. Martha tells him, I will do whatever you want. It is unfair to this girl. I actually feel sorry for her and I feel sorry for you. So you find out that Peter is the one that is allowing Casey to think that it's Martha who's refusing t- to get the divorce when it's really him.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, it is, again, an, such an interesting dynamic. And uh, each one of these characters is is so well played and and, and so just nuanced. Uh, everyone here is bringing their A game. And so it's really going to set up for a really great storyline for these three um we are going to learn a lot more about peter here in a bit though that really i think distracts away what is from a cool story arc (laughs) i I
0: almost you know i almost roger and i hate to say this because i mean i'm a horror. we're we we have a horror podcast we are that's what we do but i almost feel like i would have preferred a, a just a drama with the dynamics of these three something like a you know, I don't know, a, a Kramer versus Kramer or a network or something like that where we got to... I just want to watch this. I just want a family drama with these three. Fuck all this other stuff that becomes nonsense. I wanted to see more with these three. I, I really could have... I would have been fine if this was just a, a, a family drama about th- this man struggling with his religious background and trying to juggle his, his mistress and his wife. I feel I found that to be some of the more interesting parts of the film Um, you know and you can tell he still really cares about her because before he leaves he's like do you need anything and she's like no no except you just want everything to stay the same don't you but what are you gonna do when that girl finds out and he's quiet He, he can't respond he just gives her a kiss and then he leaves and when he leaves where does he go Roger he goes to church to pray in front of the statue
1: probably to confess the fact that he ignores her to her face, is it's so offensive. And they're, again, they're throwing something with this character, Peter. Uh, they're throwing something at you that completely contrasts all of the likability up until this point. And he's so cold. And he's so disconnected from her just spilling herself to him. She is just literally just telling him straightforward. You can tell they've had this conversation a million times. She is not filtered. She is just telling him straight out the facts of the matter and he just refuses to even answer her it's all it's insulting it's insulting and doesn't she seem just so
0: exhausted by it all oh my god this poor woman (laughs) she's over it like she's just so just over it now after he goes to church we do cut to a hospital where peter goes to see this man that's in the hospital bed. And when he goes in the room, even the other officers are like, Hey man, this isn't your jurisdiction, but he, he ignores him because he apparently knows this guy. He calls him by his name, John. John is in like this plastic bubble. Uh, the, the, the other detectives like, yeah, his wife said that he, uh, he was reading the newspaper and then he went down to the supermarket and just started stabbing people. So Peter goes up to John and whispers to him. He's like, John, John, why did you do it? And within the plastic bubble, what do you think John's response is?
1: God told me to! <laughs> and then he dies. I wish we could have seen that fucking supermarket stabbing.
0: <laughs> okay, so, okay, Roger, thank you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing I have a problem with this film. It opens with a bang, literally, but we never see any of these supposed murders. I mean, there's a there's a there's a man coming up that blew away his whole family. We don't see that. Uh, the only other murder we really see is is by somebody who is not even being commanded by God to do anything. I I I really wish the film would have given us more scenes of these people actually becoming unhinged. I guess we get the scene at the parade coming up, but it's so like meh that it doesn't really register with me. Like I want to see like just a family, man, just sitting there and the 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 process that goes into how this particular being is commanding them to do anything. We get it with sort of with the opening
1: scene, but then really never again, never again. This is a film that I could I could handle a remake of this and I would like them to just take off the kids gloves and get fucking wild with it because yeah there are some some ideas here that would just be absolutely on ca- I mean on camera I don't even I don't know you know we're talking about like the one guy the story that's gonna come up I mean holy shit is that visceral but yes I really wanted to see definitely wanted to see this this uh, supermarket sequence um it's, a, it's still a very creepy moment I'm still hooked at this point um, when this guy delivers this line I'm like god I wish they were showing it but I'm still very invested. Uh, but you're right. There are several scenes here that that are needing that, that those big moments are what sell this movie.
0: And But I also feel like the film starts out going at a, a bullet tr- uh, train pace. Like we're going from one extreme scene to the other, but then at some point it just kind of fizzles out. And I think that's another problem I have with the film because we go from, we go from this man who just stabbed a bunch of people in the supermarket saying God told him to and, and choking and, and dying. Now we cut to a police station where Officer Jordan um, gets a call from this mysterious man, we see who it is. Like they're not trying to like not show us who this man is, and he comes back into play, calling from a payphone to tell him that at the parade they're having their St. Patrick's Day parade that day, five more are going to die by the hands of one of their own because he has willed it to be. Peter gets on the other line, tries to tries to get more information from the guy, and he's like, just just be prepared, five more people are going to die, and he hangs up.
1: I like this moment immediately following here, Troy, where he's like, we got to get, you know, we got to get everybody down to the parade. It gets really, really frantic. It really starts to pick up for a second. Um, I, get, I said this earlier, but this film's strongest moments are when there is chaos, when there is a lack of control. Um, and I'm building up to this parade moment. Truthfully, like, I love this moment. I know you said you think it's not, maybe it's kind of meh, but I really, maybe I was too stoned. I don't know. When I watch the sequence, I I can't think of a film that's captured a parade, first of all, on such a grand scale, looking so believable with so many people. It's a huge sequence. It is. I'm. I'm assuming they must
0: have gotten permission to film actually during a the real parade. That's all I can say. There's no way the film, looking at it, what its budget was, was able to just do this parade for this film. I'm assuming they 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 got permission to film this scene uh, during an actual parade. I guess I. I what I mean by being Mez, I, there's a lot of buildup to kind of little payoff you know yes uh, peter's rushing around he's he's telling all the other officers to get down to the parade he's even calling the the chief uh, mel from sleepaway camp to tell him if they can cancel the parade he's like no we can't cancel the parade what are you what are you stupid the the irish depend on this and so we get this long sequence of the parade um and i guess it's building some tension because we we are expecting something to happen so it keeps the camera keeps shifting to different groups of people, different groups of police officers, focusing on different police officers. And it goes on for quite a while before finally the one played by Andy Kaufman of all fucking people pulls out his gun and like literally fires at the crowd. And he shoots like one guy, then shoots another one before one of the cops just comes and shoots him. So I'm saying like it was a huge buildup to not a lot of carnage, if
1: that makes sense. Oh, but the buildup to it, I mean, it is a lot of buildup, but it is expertly handled i mean it's fast cuts you get all these shots of just girls in the parade like you're seeing how many people there are you're seeing the mayor you know and it's just it's this big fucking to do uh, and so when it happens when he takes out the gun yeah yeah I'll, I'll agree with you that it's it's not as big as the first one because they're able to, to subdue this guy in time is basically what happens but even when the cops start running in on him and grabbing him by the wrist and he has a smile on his face as he's firing up into the sky shoots one of the cops in the chest shoots one in the stomach he's still taking them out like he's he is unfazed by the fact that these guys are trying to mob him to the ground until finally one of them shoots him i do wish it would have maybe hit a bit more of a fever pitch after all that build up but even when the chaos starts to hit and everyone's running and crisscrossing and you see the girls in the the uh, you know the different um girls in the costumes running around and everything it just it's just I don't know. I, it really worked for me, but I hear what you're saying. I, I would have liked maybe a bigger a bigger reveal.
0: And I guess it's 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 just kind of meh for me because I, I feel like at th- this is the point for me where the film starts to fizzle out. Everything that comes after this with a few little tiny peaks, this is the moment that the film fizzles out for me because well, as, as, of course Peter rushes to the guy as he's on the ground dying and Peter hears his last words, which are, God told me to. And now it launches Roger into full fledged police procedural. I mean, w- Peter, we are subjected to several scenes of Peter doing his s- police sleuthing. He he's interviewing people. He he talks to uh, one of the guys that was riding the, the 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 bus or whatever with this guy who opened fire. And he asks him, "Hey, did you see him talk to anybody?" And he's like, "Yeah." He kind of was talking to somebody with long hair. He then interviews the uh, the doorman at the building. That the water tower that the first sniper was on. He asks him, "Do you remember Howard Gorman talking to anybody?" He's like, "You know what? Now that I think about it, he was talking to this this guy with I I couldn't tell if it was a guy or a girl with long blonde hair. I couldn't even really make out the facial features." He also talks to a shopkeeper that was next, you know, that saw Howard Gorman that day. He's like, "Yeah." Yeah, he was talking to that guy with long hair, but I like I, his face was indistinguishable. I, I didn't, couldn't even really see anything of it. And then we questioned that old broad again, Miss, Mrs. Gorman. Peter asked her, "Did your friend talk to any long-haired individuals?" Said, no, he wouldn't. And it just brought me back to the to all those stereotypes in the '80s, early '80s about you know people with long hair being like, "Ooh, you can't hang around people with long hair. They're druggies or whatever." You know, because everyone in this film acts like if you have long hair, you're an abomination of society. Cause she's like my, my Bernard would never hang around somebody like that except, and that's why it made it, it made it more apparent when he started hanging around this long haired guy. And his name was Bernard Phillips.
1: Yeah. Bernard Phillips. So she remembers the name Bernard Phillips uh that he is a barefooted individual i mean i guess this guy just walks around barefoot she's like i would walk around new york in bare feet so like again i like this broad um if this sequence troy was a standalone sequence like this and it didn't go back to police procedural again i'd say this is a phenomenal sequence you're covering so much ground you're interviewing so many people like it's really it's fast paced it's still moving But it's given you a lot of information. But what what happens with this movie and what starts to really drag it down is that it keeps just building and developing story and moving through characters. And you keep getting all these different story elements that come into play uh, that keep like building on top of each other uh, that it becomes kind of overwhelming and incoherent at a certain point there's just so much going on i wish they would have just left that police procedural aspect maybe not left it behind but significantly cut down on it because moving forward it is the majority of the film
0: it is and i feel like this film is is one of the more prominent examples of uh, telling and not showing that i've seen in quite some time does that make sense
1: absolutely, absolutely. And again, in in some moments, maybe that's intentional. Like this moment we just saw as a standalone sequence, that would have been great. That would have been really cool. You're seeing him at work. You're seeing him do his job. I've had enough of it. But we see this technique multiple times throughout the movie. We interview so many freaking people. We're getting information. We're picking up hookers in jails, getting information. It's just so much. And it yeah, it does bog it down. I'm going to give you that a hundred percent because he does more investigating.
0: Now that he has the name Bernard Phillips, he, he runs it through his, you know, police outlets, finds that Bernard Phillips has no school records at all, but he does have an address um, of Bernard Phillips mother. So he goes to her apartment to ask her some questions he buzzes himself in he goes up the stairs i do like this sequence this is pretty creepy uh, as he gets to the top of the stairs it reminds me of like psycho the moment in psycho with um Arbogast getting up to the top of the stairs this fucking crazy mother bursts out of her apartment with a fucking butcher knife slices his hand is trying to stab him she's doing this horrible horrible like bone chilling scream and he he like throws her out of the way and this poor woman I wouldn't want to say poor woman this woman tumbles down the stairs to her death and as she's dying he runs down to her he's like say it say it goddamn it and she keeps going she can't say it and then she just dies but you know what she's going to say she's trying to say god told her to
1: I thought the scene was fucking great it's phenomenal it's great it really, it, it took me by surprise. Like, I mean, I, I knew something was going to happen, but I didn't think she was just going to come out swinging like that with that fucking knife. And then that whole moment of them going down the steps, like, because I, I, I hear you. It does, it has psychos vibes for sure, but it really, like, lingers on the brutality of people falling down the staircase. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, like, that woman, she goes down, like, headfirst on a staircase at one point. And when, by the time she gets to the bottom of the steps, just seeing her there bleeding out, it, it, it's... It's pretty startling. It, it's a rather shocking scene, and it's handled really well. And the fact that you don't even get the, the, you know, you don't get the full sentence. She dies before she can, but you know, you know deep down, and he knows as well. And so he's in full panic mode now. Um, he knows that this is not just a coincidence, and he's being proactive. He is being proactive. So
0: yeah, his hand bleeding. He, he, when his hand is bleeding, he, he does leave her apartment and he goes outside and he does notice like outside the apartment, there's this big shrine to St. Bernard. And he goes to the, he goes to the hospital where the examiner is examining her body and tells Peter, he's like, there must be a mistake. This wasn't a Mrs. Bernard because she's a virgin virgin birth. This is the first um, of many mentions. We get of virgin births in this film. And of course, like right, it just, Okay, fine. We find that out. You're telling us this was a virgin birth. So then it goes down to talk to the to the doctor that delivered baby Bernard. The doctor tells him that when the baby was born, basically they could not determine whether it was a male or a female. It had no distinct sex organs. So they were just went along with
1: the with the mother wanting to call this baby Bernard. And he talks about how the mother felt like completely like calm and understanding and does not seem really like at all affected by the fact that her baby is you know different unique but yeah so it, it's setting up this character it's all building up to what will be the introduction of bernard um this is where they really start laying the groundwork of this character and and i'm gonna say like just so you all know moving th- through this review i definitely think that what ends up being the reveal for Bernard uh, is kind of the downfall of the movie. We're gonna get there. I just want you to he- keep this in mind as you move through this review that that Bernard really kind of sinks. What is a ship that is at this point? This ship has been moving nicely at a at a fine pace. It's it's a, you know it's moving full speed ahead. Bernard and his just overall existence and what he brings to the table with this film definitely steers it off course a bit. What do you think, Troy?
0: Absolutely, and the fact that they call him Bernard—that's not a very intimidating, godlike name to begin with. So, like, I'm not gonna be—I'm not gonna be scared of somebody named Bernard. Like, could they have not come up with something a little bit more <laughs> demanding sounding or something? Bernard, oh Bernard, summoning you, I'm like, fuck Bernard. Like, that does not sound. I am not gonna be taking orders from Bernard. I can tell you that much. But now we we cut to uh, Peter. <laughs> Now questioning this random man who I mentioned earlier that I would like to have seen this scene too. This man who is just nonchalantly talking about that he literally just shot his kids and wife and it gets pretty gruesome because he, you know, he shot his son in the back of the head and then his wife started screaming. He shot her and his little daughter ran into the bathroom and she was scared and he had to. Uh, convinced her to come out by saying that it's just a, it's just a game. Daddy's just playing a game with mommy and brother. And the, the gun is a fi- uh, fake. And he says, after a few minutes, the bathroom door opened and she came out and I, I let her hold the gun and told her it was a, a toy. And she started laughing. And that's when I
1: shot her for not showing the scene. This sequence is still phenomenal for what it's doing. The acting again, on behalf of this gentleman uh, is Phenomenal! I, I really think his delivery—it's just so not affected. He's so calm. He's c- content. He's serene almost, uh, and he's chuckling his way through this dialogue. And it—it just—you know what you're hearing him say. It's sick. It's truly twisted what he did. And he's—it talks in such extreme detail. I absolutely adore the scene. And they come into it, you know, entering again from that police procedural element. So like the fact that they're not showing the kills, I I get what they're doing. They're playing up that kind of you're coming into it from Peter's viewpoint. You weren't there for the sequence. So you're coming in and, you know, as little as he did. I get what they're doing, but they're taking it down. So They're making such specific choices with how they're handling this that they're just simply not leaning into the strengths. They're not leaning into their strengths of what they showed us prior, um, and so we do start to feel really deprived because the way he describes the scene, it's it's just so graphic. Yeah, I, I wish I would have seen something setting up to this because I don't know why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't? But
0: he's also a little bit more insightful into the idea that God told him to do it because Peter asks him, he's like, "Don't you feel bad? Like you you literally just blew away your whole family?" He's like, "No, I don't think I've ever felt so good." Peter's like, what, how can you say these? Like, because it's been very, because it was very fulfilling to do something for him. After all he's done for us, he, he told me to do it. He even guided my hand. I didn't even have to aim. He says, and again, now Peter's like, fuck this again. So he, Peter actually gets really aggressive, like grabs this guy, throws him. He's like, you motherfucker. You blew your little, you blew your son's head off. And his partner has to run up and tell him, I've never seen you fly into this sort of rage. You need to be careful because you could actually hurt someone. But I mean, just this guy, like, so he seems so um, at peace with the fact that he was able to do something that God told him to do because of everything that God has done for him.
1: This film has, up to this point, and will continue to do so, um, has bombarded you with characters. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because almost every character you're introduced to is acted extremely well. Um, But, like, I'm going to use an example. You know, his partner that you just mentioned, he has this really kind of tender moment with him, almost like kind of got gay vibes as he puts his hand up on his shoulder to comfort him. I'm not saying that they're trying to be gay, but, like, for, you know, cop to cop, brother to brother. Like I feel that it just, it feels almost too sensitive. Um, And then they never revisit this character again. Like, you know, he doesn't really come back into play. This character doesn't bring anything to the storyline. It's just kind of weird. Like, why do they have this moment? Roger, there's a lot
0: of characters that don't like, they just show up and I'm like, who I don't even like in my notes, I can't even give them a name because I don't know their name. They just show up to again, tell information. And then they're gone. Very good example. The next scene, he is back. At, I don't know where he's at. It's, who is this supposed to be? Is this his dad? Is this an older officer friend? I don't know. It's just an old man. He's in his apartment um, and he's asking him, is he ever have a case where someone claimed that God told them to do something? He's like, yeah, you get that all the time. He's like this. And uh, some of this shit, this man says, I'm like, oh my God. He's like, yeah, you get some of those young girls that claim that. But then it turns out it was just their stepdad or their teacher. I'm like, holy shit, dude. Um, But he's like, but I do remember a case my old partner had back in 1951 where a girl told him that God
1: did her. That's it. This is this guy's whole scene. Who was it, Roger? Do you know? So what I gather from this moment is they do this really great shot leading into this moment. Like this, this film is often very pretty. I I need to again, acknowledge that some great transitions too. this moment opens on a shot. It's an aerial shot over top. What is the parking garage for all of the police officers scooters? That they use and so this guy, I think, is like their mechanic back there. I'm guessing a former, you know, an old cop who's now maybe the mechanic or runs that area of that department and has a relationship with Peter. But I'm literally piecing this together because this is the only scene to, to put that together. That's just that's what I'm assuming because I have the same note. But with the setup, you think this character is going to be way more prominent because he has this great moment with him. And then he never comes up again. Like, you never see this guy again. And I was just waiting for this guy to come back. And that is the
0: reason why I asked you who this guy was, because I love the fact, because this has happened in several movies we've watched, where I'm like, who is this character? I don't know who they're supposed to be. I always ask you because I know you've created some backstory for who this fucking character is. I I know I always know Roger's going to have some story for who this is okay I'll buy it's a mechanic but like yeah you're not given much at all here Um, but what ends up happening again another scene of Peter going and being told something because he goes to find who this partner was and this guy basically tells him uh, about the night that he encountered Mrs. Phillips who ended up being Mrs. Phillips Running nude down the street, we do get a flashback. This is the one moment the film can give us a flashback. It won't give us a flashback or anything in in these murders or whatnot, but we can get a flashback of this broad running down the street, butt ass naked. He picks her up in a in a rainstorm, and you know she's begging for help. He gets she gets in, and she tells him that she was like walking along, leaving Nantucket by the carnival or something at Nantucket when this huge thing. Uh, hovered above her, the size of a house. Next thing she knows, uh, it, it lifted her up into the air. And we get a f- we actually get a flashback of her her naked body floating in this thing. And she was basically, it took her clothes off and violated her and then dropped her back down. And of course he's laughing at her and he's like, Oh my God. So you that's what you're telling me happened. He's like, what did it, did it fool around with you? And that's when she like gets out and runs away. But this this dude is not the most uh, compassionate individual because even like when Peter first gets there to ask him about Miss um, Phillips, the night you picked up Miss Phillips, he's like, yeah, if I was her husband, I would
1: have beat the shit out of her. And like, just, you know, acknowledging your point here and, and agreeing with you. Why couldn't this gentleman in the, the garage? Why couldn't he have been just combined with? with this other officer. Why could he have just been the one in the story who's who's like, oh, you know, I had this experience once and then, like, gone into that? Uh, Neither of these men ever come back into play. So, like, I mean, couldn't they just have skipped a couple of steps here and just gotten me into the point a little bit faster uh, for a bigger payoff? Well, Yeah, why
0: couldn't have the first guy just told him the story? Hey, this is what my buddy told me happened to him. He picked up... You still could have got the flashback, right? Um, It just... Yeah, because uh because then we jump to another person that is just there for god knows what reason because this is i mean i know it drives a little bit of plot but like nothing major he goes to talk to a, a reporter uh because he wants the reporter to to write the story about these people committing homicides that are claiming god told them to do it um this reporter is like hey I'm not the right man for you. You can go up and talk to the religious reporter upstairs. I was like, because I will have priests and rabbis hanging me by my nose. If I wrote such a piece. And he's like, well, you weren't too concerned when you wrote that piece about, you know, some hit piece about a, a priest or something doing something. I, I don't necessarily remember what he said, but then the, then the, uh, the reporter's like, well, you know what? The more I think about it, the more it would be uh, interesting to see how the uh, atheists would react to such a piece. But also, like, how are people going to react to the idea that there's uh, a god is coaching snipers on the streets of New York City? But ultimately, though, he agrees to print this article, and he's like, "It's only gonna it's gonna appear at a small little blurb on the second page." But again, what what is the point of this, Roger? What is the point of this?
1: I mean, I'll, I'll be real on my end. Th- we're not yet really at the point that I started to get turned off by by the police procedural angle. I find it interesting. Um, I think, but I do think it's bloated. And, and the problem is, is we're just, we're just getting too much of that and not balancing it out with again, the things that we're really wanting to see from it. So I do find like all of these interactions to be really well done. They're interesting in the sense that it's building to a really good idea. I like that. He's deciding to have it released via the newspaper because the police refused to, to say anything. You know, they're not going to, the police are not actively doing anything about it. They refuse to take it to, up uh, to the public, you know? So I like his decision. He's making good choices. Um, Everything that we've seen in revolving around like the abduction aspect, like even that was fairly interesting to me. You know, we got full frontal female nudity. That was pretty shocking. Um, I thought that some of the green screen work was maybe a bit dated, but still like it's playing with interesting concepts because I do like aliens, as we know from Dark Skies. But it, it is it's about to just go in a route that I just don't like. And so that's really my big issue. I'm not totally turned off by this point, though. I just don't like where they're going with it.
0: And something we glossed over with the whole abduction flashback is the idea that she was raped and impregnated by an alien. And that's how she had a virgin birth. So that Bernard was birthed by a alien being. That's something we we glossed over. I think we would hit it hard at the end because it's definitely comes into play then. But that's what's definitely insinuated in that scene. Now we move to a scene of Casey being questioned by the captain and several um, c- commanding officers about Peter and she reveals that Peter was adopted and you know, he's, he's always been kind of really secretive about his, his past, his adoptive parents, et cetera. He doesn't really know who his real parents are. They asked him if he has trouble sleeping and she says, why don't you ask his wife?
1: I thought this was kind of a jarring transition going from the newspapers to suddenly like you're in this moment where Casey's being interviewed and and I know we've been seeing so much police procedural but still like I just I I was kind of thrown off I guess it makes sense that like they'd be looking for him and be pissed at him because he fucking released you know this information to the public that's I'm sure a crime but it just doesn't really set up the stage for that all of a sudden you're just in this like boardroom where they're waiting for Casey, she gets walked in and she gets launched, you know, all these questions. And you're like, whoa, we're kind of just shifting the tone here for a minute. And I'm just kind of thrown off a bit. Did you feel that?
0: Yeah, I mean, scene could have been cut in my mind. Like if you cut the scene, you're not losing anything. You're like not losing anything plot wise. This was just a see another kind of talky scene thrown in, into the into the mix of this film. B- basically, she gets mad at them. She's like, this is starting to sound like an inquisition. I'm leaving. And the sergeant says, yes, ma'am, but I want you to realize that people who are too damn religious make a lot of trouble for everyone. Ain't that the fucking truth?
1: Ain't that the fucking truth? What a good fucking line, Troy. I know. That's that's the reason they kept that scene in there, so, the, so he could have that moment. And I think that was the first... When I've watched through this the first time, I, I realized exactly just how much they were challenging the idea of religion in this movie. Um, I thought it was kind of ballsy to have the idea of a virgin birth being an actually an alien abduction. Cause I definitely know that they're implying something with that. You know, I mean, they're definitely implying that this is not the first virgin birth and maybe like Christianity is built around the idea that it's actually an alien. I thought that was pretty wild. But when he said this line, I mean that that's pointed, it's very pointed and, and it's at a lot of religions, but especially Extreme Christians, I feel. And oh boy, oh boy, absolutely you're right. Ain't that the fucking truth indeed? Um, And the way he says it, I was just like, preach it, brother. I hear you. Holy shit, it hits.
0: Well, and her response is, you are right, sir. Religion can ruin a man. You'll see to that. And then we cut to what appears to be a lot of religious Outbreak riots because of the article printed. People are like rioting, religious people are rioting, other people are rioting because. It's put out there that P- God is telling people to kill people. So, of course, the, relig- the religious folks, the folks of faith, are not happy with this. So they're out there protesting in front of the newspaper, protesting in front of the police station. And then others are counter-protesting. I really wish we got more of this element, but it's, it ju- it's just shown in a couple of quick flashes and then it's kind of done. Well,
1: this one fight sequence they show with these people brawling, I was like, holy shit, like this is... These people are just full on fighting in front of the camera. Yeah, it looks really violent. I wish I wish at this point I could have really used a moment like this, uh, but it's not. It's literally just like newsreel.
0: Yeah, and it's it's done. Now, this next scene, again, talk about what the fuck moments, Roger. We cut to uh, Detective Jordan, who we've had. A, we've seen a couple times here. He's 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 been, you know, prominent. He gets confronted. By uh, one of the drug dealers on the streets, apparently, who wants to know like, hey, I thought we had a deal, man. Why are my people still being arrested? Jordan says, listen, I'm doing what I can. The captain said people needed to be arrested, so I had to find a few people to arrest. That's when they like moves him into the stairwell and he pulls out a fucking knife and he says, you know what? I've been trying to think of a way to take care of you for a long time. And now with all these God killings. I think I have the way. And he proceeds to
1: stab Detective Jordan to death in the fucking stairwell. I really needed a kill, but I did not need this at this point. I had no idea who, at least the one character is at all. I mean, Zero gets introduced here. The character's name is Zero. Um, I'm not a fan of the character. Has not aged well. Um, And he gets introduced out of fucking nowhere. And there's this whole idea that's just introduced about Jordan, you know being a being a crooked cop and and you know being aligned with the wrong side of the streets and and it's it's never even been touched on before if it has like I didn't catch it and so for this to be introduced as a plot point and then to have this character get killed I don't know man I could have dealt with literally this entire subplot being removed it serves the film no purpose at all at all I yeah,
0: I wish they would have taken anything involving zero, any of that were the kind of the final moments of the film with with zero I wish that would have all been removed to be honest with you. But yeah, no, this is just jarring. He he then he writes god on the wall in the detective's blood. I kind of see where where they were going. Like it, it it's actually sets up an interesting theme or idea of people are going are people going to use this as an excuse to kill people and get away with it? Like are they going to be able to like just oh, I I'm going to kill my wife and I'm going to say God told me to, and they'll put me in an asylum and I won't be, you don't have to go to jail. It's, you know, because even like if you go back to the guy in the asylum that talks about shooting his family, even uh, Peter's partner said, you know what? You know what's going to happen to this guy? He's going to serve a couple of years in this mental facility and he's going to be out and people are going to forget about it. So I think they were setting up a really good like subplot but it goes nowhere. Like I love the idea of people committing murders and blaming it on God told them to, because that's the hysteria that's happening. Great, great idea. But here it fails. It goes nowhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. And, And all it does is create a few characters who are really just unlikable and unfortunate. I think portrayals that feel very of the era, but just are, are not aspects of the film that age well at all. Um, and they're just not explored enough for me to really care for it to feel relevant to the story. So it does the the overall film a great disservice. The stabbings kind of effective. There's some really creepy shots of Jordan just laying there on the ground looking very much dead. So I did appreciate that. But yeah, it, it's not enough to really go anywhere.
0: So yeah. And there's this conversation that the captain has on the phone with Peter and Peter is like, you know, it's, this is not connected to the God murders. He's like, most of the, the God murders don't leave the scene. They stick around. Um, they stay with their victims and he's like, I know Jordan was playing both sides of the street. So it has, it has something to do with that. I guarantee it. And the captain's like, is that any way to talk about a dead officer? He's like, well, that's, it's the truth, sir. Then we, yeah, we get the the moment where Peter goes to jail to question this hooker about her involvement with Jordan and her pimp. Joe Brown, who's been, again, I'm trying, what does this have to do with anything? What is he trying to find out? I guess he's trying to find out who killed, who possibly could have killed Jordan, but like, do we need this scene? Because who killed Jordan does not seem to be that big of a
1: issue in this film to have this scene. This film is getting too distracted and it needs to just maintain its course um, and and yeah, I mean, like, uh, is this scene again like well done and well acted? Yeah, absolutely. But it just it feels very disjointed at this point. Um, and uh, for me, this is around where it's really starting to to lose its pacing, to lose its steam. Well, you
0: lasted a lot longer than my I did in that regard. And I'm not saying there are intros, but it's just so heavy, heavy handed with the with with the telling and just characters revealing things and just moving from one conversation to a new character that's introduced to a next to a next to a next. It's just in a row. And you're just like, Oh my God, can we get some, something, something happen? And then, okay. And this is another thing I'm talking about. Now we cut to a room full of men. Is this the city council? We do, including the one guy who made the phone call uh, earlier in the film to tell the cops about the parade shooting, but they're all talking about like the killers and like, they're apparently aware of who this Bernard is and the power that he has. Like, is this some sort of like secret society? What
1: is going on here? Yeah. So he's, and it's it's kind of sprinkled. It's not, like it's not really handed clearly off to you, but it is sprinkled kind of throughout bits of dialogue and so forth. But I mean, basically Bernard has telepathically started creating his own cult. Of followers, and he's using like high-ranking religious figures to form this kind of like minions, if you will, who are doing his bidding. And that's why, uh, he, whenever there's been a, a shooting, they always want to make it known because that's been mentioned a few times now. That before every killing, before every you know mass murder, or whatever it is. It's announced first. They always get contacted. The police department's contacted, so it's always them. It's these guys. It's his. It's his cult members working behind the scenes. Um, and it, it's interesting in concept to me. Like I like that he has people doing his bidding. Uh, It's another aspect that I could think this film could really use a remake because I think this could be handled completely differently. Um, But right now it's just a group of old white men, which I guess makes sense for the era. Like that's probably what it would be. Um, Wealthy white men, prestigious white men uh, who are you know his high ranking officials and they're all just kind of doing his bidding as needed. And they're kind of getting ready for what he's making clear is going to be some kind of big event. Um, And so they're all clued in on the killings. Some of them are very much questioning the killings, which I also like that aspect. But these characters are not clearly or coherently enough explained to the viewer. Uh, And when we do get moments with them, we're just not close enough to them. We don't really understand. Um, So it's very brief. You just don't have enough time spent with this to feel like a strong aspect of the film.
0: Yeah. Then I do wish that more time was spent building this idea of this telepathic cult because it is actually very intriguing. Yeah. And some of the conversations these guys have, like one guy's like, why can't he just come and like save people and and do good deeds? And the other one's like, well, because you get more attention, like killing people. Like he basically bluntly says like people aren't, you're not going to convince people to, to join you by doing something nice for them. But when you put fear in them, by killing them or, th- or letting them know that you are capable of killing, they're going to join you. So it's that idea of like being f- coerced into doing something that you don't want to do by the, th- the idea of harm or violence or whatever. And then they also do mention the fact that Bernard has a, has a, a big interest in a, in a detective and he wants this detective to join them. So we cut to the street where, Peter is picked up by a man who says that his boss, Mr. Richards, wants to talk to him. His driver tells him to get in this limo, drives him to Richard's hotel room or whatever it is. This is a man who basically reveals that Bernard, as you mentioned, has spoken to this group of powerful men in New York City telepathically. And they were all chosen. They all just like showed up at the same location at the same time. And since then, they've been doing these Regular meetings and Bernard has kind of been their leader. I mean, it's a lot coming at once from this character we've never seen. And then Peter asks him, "Has Bernard ever told you about his mother? The fact that she was walking on a beach in 1951." And this is when Richard he's like, "I don't want to hear this," and he literally starts to choke to death. I mean, this is a, an elaborate scene where like this poor man falls on the ground. He's like hacking. Peter's like yelling at him, shaking him to like, fight him, fight him, bangs him on the chest. And then he just dies right there in front of Peter. So obviously like Bernard is very much in tune to what's going on with these men. And if somebody gets too close to the truth or if one of these men find out too close to the truth or is revealed too much about him, he's going to kill them.
1: Right. I feel that this is one of the most intriguing aspects of the movie and it is certainly not explored enough, which is disappointing because you know, as quickly as we're introduced to this group of men, we then go to this moment with Richards. It's a quite a good scene. You know, it's suspenseful. You're learning so much so fast. And then all of a sudden, yeah, he's just dispatched. And it is, it's is—it's shocking. You know, he basically has like a heart attack or something. And he falls and he dies right there in, in Peter's arms. But there's so many interesting things being explored. Even the fact that like they find Peter telepathically, like all of these telepathic aspects that are coming into play, they're just suddenly there out of nowhere. Um, and it, it feels like almost you as the viewer are supposed to just kind of like roll with it, but it does start to feel very like confusing. There's so many moments coming up here where I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Um, and I normally follow along pretty well. And you're right, Troy, like I make, I'll even like make up excuses or storylines in my mind, to like, try to explain things off. But there's some things that happen coming up here that I'm just like, I just I can't exactly say what happened. <laughs> like, it gets very convoluted.
0: Yeah, this movie. This movie, like, it has a lot of good ideas and a lot of good themes, but it just it just touches the surface of them. It it doesn't really elaborate on any of them the, any of them enough in my mind. Um, so Peter just like leaves this dead guy nonchalantly. He goes to the subway, where we see that the guy who made the phone call at the beginning of the film about the parade is following him. And as Peter's standing on the ledge, waiting for the train, as the train's approaching, this guy like runs up to him and is literally trying to push him on the track. But Peter resists and he's like, I've been waiting for you. And he slams him against the wall. And then we find out this gentleman's name is Logan. And he basically says that this was his task. Killing Peter was his task to make up for alerting the cops that there was going to be a shooting at the parade. This was sort of his, he, this was how he had to repent. Uh, And he failed. And Peter is like, do you, do you know where this Bernard is? And Logan's like, yes, but I can't take you there because I can't tell him that I failed. And Peter's like, well, you don't have to, I'll tell him for you. Let's go.
1: (laughs) I feel that there's a big aspect of, of all of this that feels like Bernard and Peter are almost like being drawn to each other. This all feels very intentional. So again, when you when we say that there's interesting concepts that they're just touching the surface of them, this is this is building to a moment here that we've kind of you know been anticipating. You know that Bernard is going to be handed off as a rather massive aspect of the film, and there's so many ways that they could go about doing this the setup of entering this like this building this like you know warehouse kind of building and taking this freight elevator down to to find him it's building up to something it feels like it could be quite monumental um but troy like my god my god i can't think of a time when i have watched a film i cannot think of a, of another occasion in which i've been more surprisingly let down <laughs> than upon the reveal of this character Yes. So
0: yes, Logan leads him to this dilapidated building, takes him down the freight elevator to the basement because he says Bernard does not like to go upstairs. He likes isolation because he's becoming more powerful. And then something happens to Logan. He, he gets
1: killed. So Logan, because he failed Bernard, he sends the elevator to go back up and then he bends down and he puts his head in the open slot. So when, when the elevator goes up, the wall, Basically crushes his skull. You'd never fucking know it. Because while it's intense and, you know, creepy because you hear him screaming, you don't see shit. And this is, it's now enough times over the course of multiple events uh, where we've not seen the brutality. And we've seen this film do it. We've seen this film do some brutal, shocking things. So now to just not show it feels lazy. It feels like they're skimming past it.
0: They definitely do cuz I had no idea what happened to him. I'm like, "Okay, I guess he died. We hear him make a noise, so I guess he's dead." But yes, Peter goes in this furnace room and we see Roger. Yes, what is one of the most lackluster villain reveals of all time. Bernard, who long blonde flowing locks wearing all white, glowing, and he immediately like retreats. He acts like he's scared of Peter. Um, And Peter's like, why are you scared? What don't you want me to find out? And Peter's starting to realize, you know what? Bernard can't kill me. He's like, you can't kill me, can you? Because I'm different too. This Bernard character, though, is like the way we're introduced to it is just pointless. But like he, he barely says anything. And then like Peter gets dizzy and goes to the, like he gets towards these flames. Bernard approaches and causes like fire to shoot out of this like furnace. I mean, Peter gets up and he runs back upstairs and like, that's their first encounter. It's like, you think Bernard maybe is going to kill him or try to kill him, which he does, but he fails. But like this Bernard character has to be the least intimidating thing I've ever seen in my life.
1: Bernard looks like he is about to break out into a performance of Abba's Waterloo. He is—he is just f- fair blonde, Swedish-esque looking individual in f- a flowing tunic, barefooted, gold. This man is projecting gold light. I'm curious how, like, he managed to go around, like interacting with people up until this point because I'm assuming he couldn't always have been gold Um because now they're saying he's getting more powerful so I'm assuming this is him in his more powerful form, glowing Um but it does not make him at all intimidating. Like, it doesn't do anything. This, you know, being bathed in yellow light, golden yellow light, does not add an intimidation factor to him. And, like, he definitely has, like, a skin thing going on where he's starting to look, like, more alien-like when you look at his face. But the light is so bright, he's so blown out that, like, you really can barely tell what's going on. So he just really, he just looks like a long-haired Swedish man in in a white gown. And it's just it's such a monumental letdown. And the first thing that happens when Peter walks in the room, the literally the first thing that happens, like Bernard, like scuttles away from him into the corner and he like puts his hands up, like he's about to do some like magic spell. And it's just for being the introduction to this, what is supposed to be, I would think I would assume this formidable opponent. I I, I can't imagine him looking any more weaker or like less like <laughs> Just completely incapable of defending himself precisely just look I
0: mean he's cowering away like there's nothing intimidating about this person and I get it he his power comes telepathically but there had to have been at some point right where he was having to socialize with people and having to get them to to do what he said before he became powerful enough to do it telepathically because we are told early in the film that he was talking to all these people but this dude like this if this guy walked up to me wearing all white that those long blonde flowing locks no shoes on them, I'm gonna make Yeah, sorry. I mean, it's just it's it's sort of insulting, but I mean, I guess you know, in a in a roundabout way, I'm I'm trying to get what they were going for, but I feel like I don't know. And it's not that the character isn't played well; he is, but it's just in the context of the film, I, I was
1: pretty pretty let down. I wanted something so different, Troy. I wanted something like I just I think I had this idea in my mind. I had my heart set on how I thought this movie was going to go. Uh, you know, earlier I compared it to like the experience I took from Life Force, and you know, Life Force definitely had moments where it was kind of all over the place. But holy fuck, if we're going to talk about a finale and a, you know, an overall a force that is intimidating, an alien force at that. I mean, that movie it, that movie gave us so much, so much to go to run with. This film, when this introduces the main opponent, the main antagonist, it just it couldn't be more of a miss, in my opinion. I I
0: agree. It really kind of sank the film for me. And then now, you know, and it's brief, Roger. It's not like there's some big confrontation. They don't have lengthy dialogue. There's no like battle of the wits. It's literally probably a two minute scene. Once the fire comes out, Peter runs outside. He go. he leaves. And now we cut to him doing more investigative work because he, at this moment, what it did allow him to realize is that he's special. Like he has some sort of, powers or something. So he goes to his, the orphanage that he was at as a child and asks a nun for his adoption records. She agrees and she goes and gets the record and tells him his mother's name, Elizabeth Mullen, and that you were a child born out of wedlock
1: or this child was born out of wedlock because there's no name listed for the father. This nun standout performance. By the way, this old broad, this old withered woman. God, I'm sure she's not with us today, but (laughs) she was my favorite in the movie. Now things start to move fast. You know, earlier it was was really just, it was moving fast, but it was bogging you down with too much information. Now it's skimming past these major concepts. It's like it filled the movie up with so much at the beginning of it. Now they have to get through these huge... Explanations um, by just like you said, just talking through it. Uh, They talk through all of these big revelations, and it's just um, it's feeling like it's kind of losing itself uh, and losing the pacing it set up so well at the very beginning of the movie. It's completely just all over the place now, and so I really get bummed out that this movie, as it starts to build towards this final, the final chunk, the final, you know, what is the eventually the climax. Um, It does not devote enough time at all for these big moments, these big revelations we're going to be having over this final stretch of the film.
0: Well, he goes to the nursing home where he tracks down Mrs. Mullen. Uh, He goes to see her. Knox goes in her room, and this is played by the lovely Sylvia Sidney, who's been in a lot of shit. Beetlejuice. She's been in a lot. He goes in, and she's quite alert. like She's not like some old bedridden woman on the verge of death. She's quite alert. Asks him what he wants. He says, you know, what can you tell me about the New York's World Fair? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, do you remember talking to a policeman about what happened to you after the fair? And then she recounts what happened to her. We get another flashback. She was coming home from the fair and basically a, a giant object floated above her, sucked her in. We get, we get the flashback again of this naked woman being sucked into this spaceship floating there and having her clothes taken off and she was impregnated. And when she found out she was pregnant, like her father, like, like beat her thinking that she actually slept with a man for the nine months that this baby was growing in her. She hated it and even thought it about committing suicide. But when it was born, the church took the baby away from her and she never saw it again. And then she talks about how she's still, you know, she's still a virgin. She's like me and Gladys down there. She's a virgin too. We must be the only two left. Uh, And then she's like, who are you again? And, you know, she can tell like his, like the fact that she's saying that she hated the baby, all these things have drug up all these emotions on her face. And then she realizes she's like, you are him, aren't you? And she like freaks out, Roger. She screams at him to get out, to leave her alone. Don't touch her. You've hurt me enough. You've hurt me enough. And the doctors have to come in and he he like runs out of the room. But we I mean, so much is revealed. But the scene I'm I, I'm describing it, but the scene literally is
1: maybe like a minute long. Mm, and Troy, like what's disappointing is this is a moment in the film that I think is exceptional. And this is one of the moments that I feel just deserved more because God, she's great. I mean, you're right. She's she's with it. She's not some senile older woman. She's with it, and she delivers quite an an, an interesting and emotional uh, monologue, almost, you know, on, on what happened. And yeah, again, we get some of the the um, the abduction footage, obviously, of her personal abduction. We get a really interesting shot of her actually being lifted into the UFO, and it does look very green screen with wire work, but God, like, at least they did it, you know, and and, and it looks cool, it, it almost has its own style, when it comes to the abductions, uh, but it's brief, it's fleeting, and I was really hoping to see more of it, and I believe this is the moment also where you're seeing that kind of fleshy, almost like vaginal thing, do you know what I'm talking about, like, there's this... Yeah, the, in the flashback, you do see like one of the aliens
0: has this, or one of the the being, we don't know what it, the being that's in this ship does have a, we get a close up on like this vaginal slit thing. Yeah,
1: but like, I mean, it's just, I really thought like, especially as they built up to this big emotional moment where he grabs her and he's trying to force her to hug him as he's like, what about me? Haven't you thought about like what I've been going through and not understanding? And, and she's screaming. She's like, don't touch me. And the nurses come running in. And uh, he, he runs from the room and, and the, the, you know, his, his mother, who we learn is his mother, has this really raw moment where she just grips her, herself and falls down on the bed. And she's like, don't ever touch me again. And it's, it's really like quite a strong moment. Um, there's just not enough of those right now at this point. But God, I really like this scene.
0: Strong moment cuts away. And it's a big reveal because we find out that, like I said, that, that uh, he is, Peter is. A baby that was born from a virgin birth from a fucking alien, Roger. We now cut back to who I've been missing the entire film, Martha. And guess who shows up at her place? Blonde ass Casey. Casey's right away. She's like, do you know who I am? And she's like, yeah, you're Casey, aren't you? She comes in and uh, Casey tells him Peter hasn't been home in three nights. And Martha's like, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's not like other men. And And Casey asks why they never had children. Martha reveals and this we kind of get a sense then of why this character is the way she is. She she reveals that she has been pregnant three times and they all ended in miscarriages right around the fifth month. Um, There was no explanation. Doctors could not figure out why she was miscarriaging. Casey's like, oh, my God, that's terrible. I never I never knew that. And Martha says that's because he wasn't sorry and he seemed relieved that the babies weren't born. He always had a fear of having kids. It's like, He knew they wouldn't be born. And then she mentions the fact that the doctor basically convinced her to have an operation, her tubes tied, so she couldn't have any more pregnancies. And she went along with it because that's what the doctor wanted. That's what Peter wanted. And then he leaves her and she's like, and now I'm alone. I I have nothing.
1: I mean, think of a sadder story. My God. Oh, this this poor character for not being in much of the movie, like the few times that you do see her, they really just, it's a whopper of a story she's sharing. Forced stillbirth, stillbirth? Like she could have produced offspring, but he like telepathically, I guess killed these children. I don't know. God, that's depressing. And she's like so composed. I mean, she's clearly extremely unhappy, very depressed. There's so much sadness in this woman's eyes, but she's so, she's almost like accepted it at this point, which it's just really sad. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely hinted at here in this these final
0: moments that he he killed the kids. Uh, and in fact, like Casey gets up. She's like, you know what? I got to get back to the city. Martha grabs her hand and looks at her in the eye and she's like, what kind of man wishes his babies were still born? And Casey's kind of less speechless. And at that moment, fucking Peter walks in. And, you know, he's not he doesn't seem overly surprised. He's like, I'm actually glad you both are here. I've never seen you two together. And Martha says something like, I know you're going away, aren't you? Uh, And then he has this line. He's like, you know what, Martha, all of my life, I felt close to God. But now I realize all the time that it wasn't him. And it's kind of powerful when you really think about like who he really has been close to then. It's something because then he says he wishes he would have saved all the love that he had for god his entire life he wished he would he would have given some of it to her. And he proceeds to like kiss her, like kiss her
1: in front of Casey. Ooh, I love this moment, Troy. I love Casey's response like she she's so overwhelmed, like she she just like turns away from it and she like kind of almost like uh just Walks off and like stands in a corner, like just like not wanting to even be exposed to it because she's feeling for a moment she's feeling like oh my god, like he loves her more than me. I've been a fool this whole time. Um, and it, again, this great character dynamic that could have been explored so much more. Uh, we're getting the, the the you know really amazing conclusion to it but they it feels like they almost kind of breeze through it like yeah he gives this great little moment to martha they have this kiss then he goes over to casey they have a really well acted moment together and and then the women are just kind of like left they're like no longer part of the story moving forward
0: no he tells he tells casey before he leaves is like there's nothing left for us we're all gonna just have to let each other go and that's it and you're like fuck fuck so you just ruined two women's lives i mean dude you, if for somebody who started out as such a heroic likable character he of sure has transgressed into something quite more uh despicable right and i think maybe that's the point as we get to talking about the ending of the film like it's really an interesting dynamic and an interesting character arc for this character he he goes he leaves and we cut to this fucking grungy ass pool hall where all these people are playing pool that the pimp Zero who killed Officer Jordan earlier on the film comes in. And he literally like one of his customers has been waiting for, because he's also a drug dealer. One of his customers has been waiting for him for like a a couple hours. And he's like, man, I've been waiting for you. Here's a hundred bucks. And this guy like literally just starts to like manhandle his customer, like grabs it like physically assaulting this guy takes him into a room and has like tells him to pull down his pants because he
1: thinks he has more money this character is is so despicable but he has so little time on camera that they really they i mean they just sl- like s- uh, smother him with unlikability as much as they possibly can over the course of two scenes um and it really feels like it's just misguided because What's about to happen here? Like if this was maybe the conclusion for a villain who had been consistently present throughout the course of the whole movie and had multiple interactions with Peter, um, I would be like, okay, like I get it. This is landing. But like all this is tied to is that one random cop having been killed and then that was like explored for a moment and it never came into play again. But why? Okay, so
0: let me ask you this. Why does Peter show up here? Like, what is the point, especially after all that he's found out? That has been revealed. You know why does he why does he feel the need to go to this bar? I I don't understand. Like he because he shows up, like Peter shows up at this bar, and I I, I was I kept asking myself like what is why is he there? Was he that connected to Jordan that he absolutely has to get revenge on the person that killed him? Because it certainly didn't seem that way. Like there was no real relationship built up to the between the two of them that I would be like oh he's there to get revenge. This makes sense. Like I I just could not figure out why he was here except just to show the audience like what is revealed here, right?
1: Well, I I have a theory on it. I have a theory. And I, I wish it was the idea that you presented, I I wish there was some of that. Like I wish that he did have a relationship with Jordan and that maybe he was there to avenge his death. What I think, because this movie is so vague, uh, but it's always hitting at things, I what I think is that. Because it was such a moment when Zero killed Jordan and used the blood to write God, I think because he falsely claimed that God told him to, he showed up there and was like, okay, you have to follow through with it.
0: That makes sense. But again, there's it's just filling in a lot of stuff stuff from yeah. nothing. Like There's nothing that hints at that at all. Uh, to me, this is a very shoehorned in scene just to show that Peter can't be killed. That's all. Like that's all it is to me. Like I don't get any of that, uh, any of this other stuff. I feel like this scene exists just to show that Peter can't be killed because what happens is he shows up, Zero's there, this the group in the bar sizing him up. Zero comes out to uh, to Peter and Peter's like, "Hey, would any of you happen to know who killed Detective Jordan?" And you know, Zero smirks like, "What man? You're gonna bust me by yourself?" And he pulls out a knife and he literally tries to stab peter to death but he cannot like every time he stabs it he just he he totally avoids peter it's kind of a roger it's kind of a hokey scene oh yeah i get what they're doing but yeah he can't bring himself to stab peter he keeps missing but then like to prove otherwise like to prove to himself and to people around him that he's not a pussy that it's that's not him pussing out he literally just grabs these random bar patrons and starts
1: stabbing them i feel like they're Is also like an underlying element, and I hate to be this person, but like I can't deny it now watching it in 2024. There's something about seeing this, you know, this white guy walk into this this African-American bar. Everyone's made to look very intimidating. It's got a great soundtrack, I'll say that. But, you know, he walks in. And then he has this whole moment where he's fighting with Zero, who is such a bad guy. Like he is just maniacal, uh, and he's you know putting throwing that poor guy around and you know making him drop his pants, like you said, and everything. Like he just everything unlikable he could possibly do, he does it. So now he has this whole moment, and there's this whole bit where like Peter's standing there with like light glowing around his eyes as he takes Zero over, you know, with his telepathic abilities and causes him to start stabbing like his cohorts and his friends. And so this guy is just stabbing these other people of color. And it just, I mean, aside from just being, like I said, completely misguided and the last thing I wanted to see out of this film in the sense of the story, it also just seems like it it is not aged well. This is a moment that does not feel it aged well at all. And it just doesn't lend anything to the story. It's definitely not the big climax moment I wanted from the film. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't
0: need to exist. Regardless of whether, whether it was a white bar, uh, white characters, this just doesn't need to exist, period. It, it just serves no real purpose. And like I said, it just feels like it's a shoehorned in a shoehorned in aspect of it. But also, like you said, you know, being 2024, it does paint a a lot of these African-American characters. In fact, it paints all African-American characters in the film as like criminals. And that is problematic. Yeah. And then like Peter uses his telepathic powers to make zero cut his throat. So now like now we know like Peter is aware that he can make people do what he wants them to do as well and he he uses it in a in a sinister way not a way for good so he leaves this grungy bar he goes to bernard's apartment building climbs upstairs where now bernard is there bernard is a little bit more um vocal this time around he's still glowing he still looks fucking ridiculous but he does sense that you've grown since we've we've seen each other last you've experienced it and bernard goes into this thing where he's like you know human genes Are recessive in me, he says, Bernard. In me, human genes are recessive. So basically, my prominent genes are the alien genes, the god genes. In you, it's the opposite, which is why it has taken you much longer to realize what you are, and it's it's much harder for you to break your human traits because you you have your human genes as being dominant. And so he proceeds to tell Peter, like you were supposed to be, like the one, the one that was the prominent was going to be the the God. However, because they failed with you and, and it ended up being that your human genes were their dominant ones, they had to try again. And that's where they came up with me. This is so much, Roger. This is so much. Then he says, but you know what? I can bear your child now and we can start a new species together. <laughs> and this thing reminds me of the end of the brood, Lifts up, it lifts up its... Dr- Gown, it's dress, and it has that fucking giant vagina on its stomach.
1: We're not just talking a giant vagina. We get an extreme clear close-up, lips opening, extreme close-up of a of a throbbing clit. <laughs> like, I mean, there is like a, literally a clit, and it's pulsing. And you are like, what the fuck am I looking at? A lot's happened real fast, and I'm going to circle back to something you said at the beginning of this because I think it's it's so evident now. This is a film that consistently chooses to tell instead of show. And one of the issues I have here is like, now we're getting this absurd reveal with vaginal rib cages and so forth and so on. And there's just so many things that leading up to this point, I think could have been visually depicted in so many different ways uh, to really help the viewers understand what was happening leading up to this point. Things such as, the character of Peter developing his powers. Yes, it seems out of nowhere now that Peter has understood his powers and has a full understanding of what he's doing. And I guess that's, you know, this whole stabbing at the pool hall just moments before it was supposed to be like our example of that. But like, they're trying to cram it into the final minutes of the movie. I needed to see that developing consistently over the course of the film. And it's not like you needed to have someone sit down and tell me about it. They could have shown that. They could have depicted that. They could have found ways to do that. Um, But now we're stuck with this finale moment, last 10 minutes of the movie, that feels incredibly rushed. We're given that kill sequence in the pool hall. Now we're given this big old monologue from the golden boy who's just rambling on about their species and uh, whatever. Interesting concepts, but like... At this point, like it's just it's being crammed into the the final minutes of the film, and it's just too much. I want to see it. I want to see these things happen. I want something more ex- visually exciting. This explosion that's going to happen here in a moment—it's great, but it's way too brief. The things I really want from it, I'm I'm just not getting. It. I'm just getting words.
0: That's the film's downfall. So many ideas, so many cool concepts thrown at us. None of them explored. None of them really stick. To be honest with you, like why? So now Bernard wants to create a whole new species with, with Peter and he, this pulse, this pulsating clits like you know, signaling to come and you know have some fun with it. And instead, Peter hauls off and like punches.
1: <gasps> oh my god, that gasp when he gets punched. He's such a he's such a gay man. When he's like, <gasps> oh, and he like looks back at him like, I can't believe you just hit me. But then Peter, yeah, he's like, you don't, you
0: you've never felt pain, have you? So he realizes Bernard has never felt pain. So he literally, Roger proceeds to like beat the shit out of him and choke him. And I, I, I get like this Carrie-esque moment. I think this is what they were going for, where he, where Bernard starts to unleash his telekinetic powers, causing the building, much like Carrie, the finale of Carrie, to start to collapse around them. You know, he chokes out Bernard. He actually even pulls his gun and he's going to shoot Bernard, but a, but a piece of rock from the ceiling falls and the building like starts to collapse and catch fire. And Peter has to like really stumble his way out. He almost doesn't make it. And we get this, this shot of Bernard, like laying on the ground as all these rocks and bricks are falling on him. He kind of gives this like really sorrowful, sad wave as Peter disappears from the building. And Peter like gets out just in time before the building just like literally explodes into flames. I mean, I-, I want to reiterate this scene, this huge confrontation that we were building up to probably two minutes of screen time.
1: Yeah. And barely any of it is this explosion, which at least when it happens, they really, they, they try to make it a big moment. Like you see Bernard getting buried. He looks almost Christlike. Uh, the way they have his hands positioned, everything—it looks very, very symbolic of Jesus. I feel, and and it is very action-packed for a moment. But you know, you get this big old monologue. There's so much backstory. There's so much exposition. There's so much being explained all over the course of this movie, and they, uh, and, you know, and they choose to end it on that same note. And you know, this is where it strays from. Uh, again, I'm going to compare this to something like Life Force. Like at Life Force was a really big concept, but they made sure that movie was jam-packed with big moments, great effects, big shocks, and they were able to float through these big concepts with just a consistent, uh, you're constantly just entertained and impressed by what they're doing. I really expected the same thing for this movie. I expected that big opening moment to carry through through the whole film, but it just chooses to not do that.
0: I mean, I feel like a lot of, I feel like 90% of the film's budget was spent on that opening scene. 5% of it was spent on this final moment. And then the rest was set, spent to pad the rest of the movie. Because if you think about the rest of the movie budget wise, probably wouldn't be that terrible because it's a lot of like rooms with one character and dialogue, minus the parade scene, which I really think they got permission to film during a parade for that particular scene. I mean, yeah. And that's what I meant. The film peaks with that opening scene and it never reaches that again. And in fact, for me, it just goes down, 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 down. And then you get this very lackluster climax. These two characters could have had so... We could have had a battle. Fuck, they're both telekinetic. Why couldn't we have some sort of telekinetic battle like fuck that movie with uh melissa sue anderson and like midnight midnight offerings remember the final where she's a witch and there there's this big telekinetic battle not that i wanted to see that but like come on like we're building up entire film peter's trying to track down bernard find out who he is and then we get this lackluster two-minute confrontation uh where peter easily beats the shit out of him and gets gets the best of him. I mean I'm I'm very let down. Then Roger kind of a a follow-up scene which p- puzzled me. We see Peter being or he's been arrested and he's being led into the courthouse for the murder of Bernard Phillips. And these reporters like stop and ask him like what how did you really go to that building that night with the intention of committing homicide and he's like yeah The reporter's like, well, why? Why would you do that? He says, God told me to. And The reporter's like, I'm sorry, what? Bernard looks right in the camera and says, God told me to. And we get that freeze on his his stare. And then we see that he has been committed to the state hospital for the criminally insane. And that's how the movie ends.
1: Oof, what a bummer of an ending. Oh, my God. And really, for this poor character, like I was expecting a completely different outcome. That is not the note I was expecting it to end on. (laughs)
0: But I mean, you can leave, you you can make a lot of inferences. He's, he's smiling at them because he knows he's going to be able to get out with his powers, right? I mean, if you're telekinetic and you can, you can mind control people, you're going to be able to get out of anything. And I think that's why he was smirking. I mean, we got Bernard convincing people to kill their whole family. You can't tell me that Peter can't, can't telepathically convince a judge to let him off or, you know, uh, someone in the uh, sane asylum to let him out. Uh, open the door, and let him walk away. I mean, I think he's very well aware of his power and his stature now, but yes, definitely an ending that kind of was like, eh,
1: eh, eh. all right. Well, There's a few interesting things that, you know, over the course of the film, building up th- things that were implied. One of the moments between the two women after he left where, uh, where Martha acknowledges, she's like, he has to go away now. And, to me i was like oh like he has to go away like he's going to go in, he's going to go into space like i thought this was going there i thought he was going to maybe have some big grand moment where he's sucked up into a spaceship Te- telekinetic battles absolutely all day i'm all for it and instead no this ends on a monologue and a building collapse and then this moment and i'm like oh he's going away he's just going to prison <laughs> like maybe <laughs> maybe that's what he was implying this whole time maybe he's just at peace with it i don't know they really leave you hanging on this ending and it really is it's a film that at times i found immensely entertaining and often rather well constructed but there's so many aspects of this film that i just would have done differently personally
0: i mean there's lots let's be honest there's lots of interesting themes and i think the film for people that that praise this film it's because it touches on all these interesting themes. I really would have liked to see, to see the reaction of this film when it came out in 1976. The real how well, how was the reaction of particularly of religious people? You know, I know The Exorcist. You know, had people up in arms, wrote this Catholic Church up in arms. I'm wondering the reaction to this. I'm probably not as severe, just because the film doesn't really hammer any of the themes heavily. I mean, I I, I kind of. Like the concept that it explores of of God. If there is a God, if there is a Jesus and he is able to convince people to do things, he's not going to convince them to do d- good things. He's actually going to convince them to do bad things like kill. Uh, that's an interesting concept to me. Like a God that is truly not, ha- doesn't necessarily have his people's best interest in mind. And instead he uses them for playthings and entertainment. Like, here we have Bernard, who is supposed to be this godlike figure, instead of using his power for good and to help people and to help society, what is he doing? He's having people kill their family, do these mass shootings for his own entertainment, and then them killing themselves. I mean, it's it's quite morbid when you think about it. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people have issues with religion, issues with the Bible, and because of how in some instances in the Bible, God is almost like a villainous character, like him trying to convince Abraham to c- kill his child, which is brought up several times in this film. God is not all good. God has done some really shitty things. And I think this is an example of a, of that being illustrated here, that if someone does have godlike powers, chances are, Roger, they're not going to use them for good.
1: Well, and honestly, I feel like one thing that this film does is it uses these acts of violence and it, in ways it like uses religion itself almost as a metaphor for itself it uses you know these these things these actual horrible acts that that god is convincing people to do i think in a lot of ways it all comes back to that statement that the, that the that the captain made about you know Sometimes extremely religious people cause a lot of problems. And this whole idea of, of God talking to people and, and literally telling them, go out and do these acts of murder, I think it also is touching on the idea that when you let religion get into people's heads in general, it really taints who they are and how they operate and the choices they made because they think they're doing these things for the betterment of their belief system, for the betterment of their God, because they're, you know, because they are instructed to for whatever Bible or book or reference they they go off of. Um, and I think it really is shining a light on the fact of uh, how brainwashed people can be when they are extremists, when they are sucked into these cult-like religions. Um, and so I think it's really smart in, in what it's choosing to touch on, especially for that era, I think it's way ahead of its time, way ahead of its time. But do I think that it's necessarily executed well? At times, but oftentimes, no. I think oftentimes it is a little misguided, and it just it spread itself way too thin. It tackled a lot of ideas um, it just went about handling them in, in the wrong way and didn't make for the most entertaining way. And that's why I say, again, I would love to see a, a remake of this film. I think now in the times that we're in, this is a very interesting concept. I would love to see how it would be handled.
0: I agree. I, you know, I know people hate that word remake, but this Roger, if this is a film that could use a remake, absolutely get a good get a, get a really good script writer in there that is going to take some of these themes like one or two of these themes and really expand them and really do a deep dive into them and you could get a really interesting or really thought-provoking horrifying film uh, because yes yeah, some of these themes are horrifying you hit on them the fact that people become extremists because of religion and because they of what the scripture or whatever their deity they they feel is telling them to do or telling them to act people take it to the extreme we see that we see that and how the bible is justified in, in so many people use the bible to justify so many horrible things or any book any religious text let's just not single out the bible but like that's the that's the problem with religion Um, and I feel like you could really make a good film remake of this film in the right hands and I would love to see it, but yeah, I mean, I don't hate the film. It's just one Roger. I don't think I'd ever watch again. Like I have no desire to ever watch this again. Once was enough or, you know, twice was enough for this podcast, but I I would never find myself in a situation like, Oh, I got to watch. God told me to.
1: Nope. Sorry. Imagine watching this film for like, just for like the hell of it, light pleasures. Like, no, this is a very heavy m- movie. It's very dry. And like, you've got to be in a certain mindset, I think, to sit down and watch this. I, I told
0: you it was a struggle for me to get through this the first time. I'm like, I, I was actually going to message you, Robert, uh, Roger, and I've never done with this with any of the films we've covered. I was actually going to message you and be like, I, Roger, I, I don't know if I can do this but I, I, I toughed it out and I'm, I'm glad I did because again, lots of good concepts, lots of the great acting. I mean, the dynamics between Sandy Dennis, uh, the Casey character and Peter love, loved it. But like the first time I tried to watch it, I was like, fuck this second time was a little easier to swallow because I knew what to expect. So guys, if you've seen this film, God told me to, what are your thoughts on it? Um, how do you think it's, hit the themes that it was probably trying to attempt to, to go for. We would love to hear your thoughts. We would also love a five-star rating on Apple podcasts, especially after I have to watch this movie and talk about it for two hours. Um, but with that, uh, with that Roger, I'm going to reveal next week's pick. I need it. I need a palate cleanser. I need a palate cleanser, Roger. I need something that is this brainless, ridiculous eighties fun. And I'm going to Put this out there now because this is probably going to be the most obscure film we've ever covered and will probably be the most obscure film we ever cover. Are you ready for it, Roger? I'm ready. So, guys, we are covering a film that I saw on the video shelves back when I was a little kid, you know, probably in the late 80s. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I remember the video case cover, the VHS of the family kind of posing for a family picture with the mother holding a bloody pickaxe. And We rented the film and I absolutely fucking found it completely enjoyable, completely charming. Uh, It's, it's so ridiculous. It's so low budget that I have to have Roger watch this guys. I know very few people have seen this film, so I'm putting it out there. We were covering a 1987 film called epitaph Roger. You've never seen it, right? I've never seen this movie. Okay. I cannot wait for you to see this fucking movie. I can now wait. And if you've never seen this movie, guys, it is available on Tubi under the title "Mommy's Epitaph." It was put out uh, several years ago on a trauma DVD set, and it was it was put under the title "Mommy's Epitaph." So that's kind of the title that is stuck with it. But I know it's super rare. But you know what? It's a movie I find fucking. I, I just adore it for the all the wrong reasons. So Roger. Fucking, you better saddle up because I cannot fucking wait to hear you talk about this film.
1: I know when Troy's excited for something and there's a certain level of energy that comes over him that he rarely possesses and I'm feeling it right now. I can't wait to watch this movie. You sound thrilled. Oh, because I I have to hear what you're going to say about this.
0: The Martha mother character. I that's our whole conversation is going to be about this. This broad. It's actually a very dark movie. It's actually very like it's not. It's, it's low budget as fuck. There is, a, there is a couple of really brutal death scenes. And the film itself, the subject matter, is actually really fucking dark. But it, its low budget is just a hindrance to a lot of it. But just put it on. Brainless popcorn fun. I, I don't think another podcast has ever covered it or ever will. That's how rare it is. But I'm, I'm rearing to go. I don't care. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about this film with you for years. So... You guys, you better watch the film before we do the episode next
1: week. It's again, it's on Tubi under Mommy's Epitaph. And enjoy. And you better you better listen to Troy and go leave us one of them reviews. And I don't give a fuck if God tells you to, I'm telling you to. So go on, leave a little bit of love for us. We're we're holding off on it till after the episodes now. We're being thoughtful of you guys. So come on now, give us a little bit of love because we got some really good stuff coming and after this fucking fucking sour blanket of a movie (laughs) i am ready for something light and and just fluffy and gross you're gonna love it then you're gonna love it then we'll get back to more you know
0: mainstream titles but i have to pick up a tap i after seeing this i'm like i'm doing it fucking going through with it so watch it join us next week to hear our lively conversation which i literally cannot wait for roger it's probably going to be one of our uh most humorous conversations we'll ever have but With that said, guys, yeah, we're telling you, leave us a five-star review. Check out our Patreon. Join us next week for the very little scene,
1: Epitaph. Oh, I can't wait. Good night, everyone. Good night.